It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits pretty comfortably on the left. And I'm producer Jesse Kennedy, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some great guest co-hosts, as well as some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try to make some sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears. All right. You want election analysis? We got election analysis today. First, we're joined by CNN commentator and New York Daily News columnist, S.E. Cup, who will talk to us about what she saw with the Republican Party's failures on this midterm election. Then we're lucky enough to be joined by Mother Jones National Voting Rights Correspondent and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, Ari Berman. And he'll talk to us about what he saw with the vote in the midterms. But first, we're joined by the Daily Beast Congressional Correspondent, Sam Brody. Sam, thanks for being with us today to guest co-host. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. So there was an election this week. Fact check true. Yes, on a national level. It happened in all 50 states. Basically, what we saw is that the vaunted red wave never materialized, and it turned out to be overall a much better day for Democrats than a lot of people, uh, including myself, thought it was going to be. And obviously, if that's true, it means it was a much worse day for Republicans. What's your takeaway from all of this? How did this happen? This is probably one of the weirdest elections that I've ever covered. And I think people who've been in the game for longer than I have would probably share that sentiment. It's just wild when something completely unexpected happens. And I had that feeling on Tuesday night, which I stayed up way too late, watching the returns and talking to people where just in district after district, state after state, Democrats were winning and holding on and crazy stuff was happening like Lauren Boebert on the brink of losing like a safely Republican district. Governor's races that like Democrats really had no business winning and people had written off like a year ago were easier and safe wins for the party. So like we can get into some of those examples, but I think, you know, at, at the top, why, why was this unexpected? What did people and myself included here get wrong and how we approach this? You know, ahead of the election, the conventional wisdom, right, was that Voters are concerned about inflation. They're concerned about the economy. They're concerned about crime and that the the bump that Democrats had after the Dobbs decision and abortion had faded and, and that this wasn't really top of mind for voters. Broadly, there was some reporting in the final stretch of the race about how, you know, Democrats didn't really have a focused message. They were talking about abortion. They were talking about the economy, too. They were talking about health care. They were talking about January 6th and democracy and that it wasn't coherent. I think what the results showed us, you know, Democrats Democrats always say, you know, voters can focus on more than one thing at a time. I think voters prove that. And instead of having an unfocused message, what Democrats actually did was give themselves the ability to tailor a message to the state or district in which they were running and actually edge out the the Republican focus on inflation and crime and immigration and all that stuff. Um, I think in House district after House district, whatever Democrats were kind of able to work with messaging wise, won out from suburban Virginia to New Hampshire to really tough districts for Democrats in states like Michigan and Illinois and places like that. So that's the broad view. I think we underestimated how effective what Democrats were working with was in terms of having a few different things that really resonate with voters. And it turns out for a lot of people, abortion specifically was really, really, really salient. And the polls did not reflect that. You know, I talked about this a little bit. You'll hear coming up later on this episode with Ari Berman from Mother Jones. But I think a lot of people in the media, and I have to include myself in this, were thinking that possibly the abortion issue sort of peaked too soon and that, you know, in the immediate aftermath of of the Dobbs decision, it seemed very motivating and it seemed like uh, it was going to do a lot for Democrats. And then I think 
you know, there was this sense that maybe, as you pointed out, like crime and inflation had sort of surpassed that in voters' eyes. And I do think, and I am so happy to be wrong about this, that, you know, and in retrospect, I feel like it, I have to admit, again, I feel like a bit of an idiot because it's not like women only cared about abortion rights in the month after Dobbs and then suddenly stopped caring about it. You know, it just felt like it wasn't front burner. And I think a lot of the blame for that does go to the media. And again, I'm including myself in that. I think, as you said, the voters can hold more than one thing in their head and they can be worried about inflation and they can be worried about crime, whether or not it's a real thing that they should be worried about or not. But at the same point, they don't forget that voting for Republicans means taking away the right to choose. And so I think that was a bit of a failure on the media's part and a bit of a success on the voters' part. So yay, voters. I think it should be said, too, that you can't underestimate how deftly, I think, Democratic candidates messaged around this, but they also got a lot of help because on the abortion issue, Republicans just like kept stepping on rakes and making this an issue in a way that was harmful to them when it didn't need to be. The fact that Lindsey Graham is out there, you know, weeks before the election talking about a 15-week abortion ban, and that's what he's going to put forward if Republicans win the Senate. They absolutely didn't need to do that. And Republicans kept finding a way to put this back in as an issue. And I agree with you that, you know, we underestimated just how salient it was throughout the whole election for people. But Republicans kept putting it back out there. And I think at some of those key races that Democrats won, John Fetterman, for instance, in Pennsylvania, his team did a really solid job capitalizing on the fact that Dr. Oz had really never put forward a coherent stance on abortion, what he would do on a national abortion ban, taking advantage of not just the issue and how people felt about it, but the fact that Republicans were on the defensive about it the whole time. That's going to be a dynamic that people will will appreciate as a major factor in the election. Yeah, that sounds absolutely right. It feels like a reversal of the usual situation where Democrats often you know, seem like they're on the defensive about whatever issue it is in question and Republicans are constantly attacking. And I think you're right. This was one where it did feel like the reverse was the case. And also it does feel like they maybe learned that. And in the last couple weeks, at least leading up to the election, I feel like they sort of stopped talking about abortion on the Republican side. Yeah. The ones running in competitive races themselves didn't want to talk about it the whole time. Right. But certainly you had, I'm sure after the Lindsey Graham stuff, that national Republicans were like, we're just really not going to to touch this at all. You know, someone like Herschel Walker too, the Daily Beast reporting on his background, put abortion on the front burner. And it really actually in a weird way, you ended up having a situation where in the home stretch of the election, Walker is actually having to shore up his bona fides on <laughs> the abortion issue right. to the base. And Warnock really pushed that certainly as much as, as Fetterman did. You know, Fetterman was able to exploit Oz's ambiguity, but I think Warnock really went all in on exploiting how Walker's pretty uncompromising, at least public position on abortion, you know, was not going to be popular with with Georgia voters. Yeah, that sounds exactly right. And I think another big thing was Gen Z kind of rocked the house. And it's great that I used a completely Gen X term to describe (laughs) what Gen Z did. X might be being kind to that right now. (laughs) It's it's giving Gen X. Gen Z was really rad. They got out there and they and, and they voted. And I think they, you know, they cemented themselves as sort of the second best generation after Gen X and millennials continue to fall. As most people admit, millennials are, you know, the new boomers. Man, this is a whole this is a whole as a peak millennial. I I, I know. I know. <laughs> It's between me and my shrink, and I don't know why I'm doing this on the air. Um, but no, I, I do think in all seriousness, Gen Z deserves a lot of credit. And in particular, Joe Biden sort of coming to his senses eventually and realizing that passing a student loan forgiveness thing was a win-win situation in terms of votes. So I think between that and a bunch of other things, Gen Z was highly motivated to get out there. And it looks like they came through, unless I'm reading, you know, polls wrong or whatever, it does feel like the younger people got, the more they voted Democrat. Yeah. And and I, you can't also undersell that Democrats' biggest legislative achievement of the year is probably the like biggest climate change bill that has ever been passed yeah. through Congress. It was crazy seeing, you know, I was on 
uh, obviously serving Twitter way too much, but seeing at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, like kids in line to vote at like 2 a.m. still on election night. We'll see what the data bears out. There's already been some back and forth among the sort of eggheads on Twitter as to was there sort of this youth groundswell of votes? Was there not? But I think it is already the narrative that it is. It's certainly supported by anecdotal stuff and just exit polls and turnout. I think this is an important thing about the polling miss as well. Part of the reason why reporters like myself, our predictions are aging poorly is because we've just been trained to expect that if polling misses, it's going to to miss in a way that obscures Republican support, like what we saw with 2016 and 2020. And, and pollsters are bashing their heads against the wall, being like, how can we get Trump voters? Trump voters aren't picking up the phone. And now it's just like, wait, you know who hates answering the phone even more than Trump voters is Gen Z people. They don't know how to like, like have they made phone calls ever? And so I'm super interested to see how that, that plays out. And if, if that was part of the polling miss, I I just, it, it was absolutely shocking to me that the polling did not accurately reflect democratic support in this election. And there could be some super complicated reasons why that's the case. But I, I do wonder if it has to do with, you know, current polling systems not reaching Gen Z voters. That's a really, really good point. And sort of to go along with that, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the fact that there are all these sort of, I don't know if you want to call them Republican run polls or just Republican friendly polls, all these outlets. I mean, we've had Rasmussen for years, but there are a bunch of other ones now. And they were sort of flooding the zone with favorable polls for Republicans leading up to the election. And you had some people taking them seriously, even as other people were saying, well, hold up now, these polls are not anywhere near accurate, but they sort of got figured into a lot of the poll aggregators. Yeah, As you were saying, usually when the polls are wrong, it's because they underestimated Republicans. But in this case, it may be that given that there were a bunch of polls that seemed tailored to overestimate Republicans, that you know, when you look at these aggregators now, as everybody does, things looked a lot more favorable for Republicans than they really were. Yeah, I think the aggregators are a big part of this conversation. But even as somebody like myself, I was looking at so many like individual polls in the run up to the election in places like Arizona, for instance, where recent polling misses have been really dramatic in, in the way that they haven't shown enough Republican support. So it's like I'm looking at these polls showing Katie Hobbs and Carrie Lake in the governor's race in Arizona effectively tied. And folks are going, well, if they're tied in these polls, then that must mean that Carrie Lake has a lead of, you know, three or four or more. Right. Actually, it turns out that they're basically tied. Yeah. <laughs> the, poll, the polls in that sense were correct. So it's a total mindfuck, to be honest with you. The polling discourse can be a little tired, but given how sort of unprecedented this is, at least in the context of recent elections, I'm actually pretty excited to see what exactly was behind all this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sort of of two minds of the whole election in general, and I'm, I'm sort of having to stop myself from being the downer guy, because I look at this and I'm like, I see Democrats celebrating and I'm like, well, wait a minute, it's still going to be a Republican House, which is going to be just all kinds of crazy for the next two years. There are other races where things didn't go so well for Democrats and there's a lot of state races where things didn't go. And I think over 100 Republicans nationwide who are election result deniers uh, got elected and stuff like that. And it's my personality. So I'm sitting here going, why are people celebrating? But I have to keep stopping and telling myself, no, you know what? People like there should be some celebrating among Democrats and on the left because a lot of bad things that could have happened didn't happen. And sometimes you have to be okay with the fact that, well, things weren't as bad as they could have been, and that's a win. I'm sort of stopping myself and reminding myself that it's okay to see people on the left being happy about the results on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's right as a gut check, because you have to go, okay, Dems are, are popping the champagne. They lost the House. A Republican House is going to get up to all kinds of shenanigans with respect to oversight. Democrats aren't going to be able to pass their agenda anymore. This is not something we're celebrating. But the expectations game is so important. And we've spent two years being like, there's going to be a red wave. Joe Biden is unpopular. All these factors that were leading people, and I should say people in both parties, to expect that Republicans were going to pick up 20, 30 seats in the House and like three or four Senate seats. 
And when that's in the bloodstream and that's what's being talked about every day, and that is the sort of parameters of the midterm election, the fact that it is an outlier in Democrats' direction, and yes, it it doesn't mean that they kept the House, though that is, as we speak right now, still in play, which is insane. When you take into account those expectations, it's a pretty shocking win for Democrats. And I think as you look outside of Congress, too, I mean, Democrats are going to come very close to sweeping the most competitive governor's races. Yeah. They're, they're holding governorships in places like Kansas. They flipped the Michigan state legislature for the first time in decades. They were not supposed to flip the Minnesota state legislature, and they did. It came from out of nowhere. Did so in Pennsylvania. These things have, have real impact. And I think that has been an under, undercover story and will get more attention probably in the weeks and months to come, which is that Democrats, the knock on them has always been they, they <laughs> they don't give a shit about state-level elections right. and state legislatures, right. and there is such disinvestment in them. And they've come back in a big way. And the playbooks that have been at use in Pennsylvania and Michigan on the state level, I think Democrats are going to study those incredibly closely and try to apply some of those lessons. And I think just one more thing to maybe contextualize some of the Democratic celebrating, with the exception of Kerry Lake, who, whose race has not been called yet, right. the most kind of MAGA election denier candidates running for top state offices like governor and secretary of state are all going to lose. Right. No, that's huge. That that can't be undersold. That is just unbelievably huge. I was reading some pieces, even at the local, at the very local level, there's some really good news on like school board elections. I've been really, really worried about a lot of the school board stuff that's going on in the country. Some of it is going on under the radar. Some of it has, you know, it's bubbled up. But in places like Texas and a couple other places, there were people running for school boards who were just like the most horrible people in the world. And in a lot of places, they got spanked. And that was kind of nice to see because I really did not expect that. And and one of my biggest fears coming out of this election was that regardless of what happened on the national or the higher state level, that it was going to be at the local level that it was going to be stuff that to me signaled a really grim future. And it looks like maybe that didn't happen. Yeah, that's a really good point. I would I would love to go into some of those receipts and see. It was a big storyline in this election cycle, the school boards and the fact that, you know, a sort of conservative way of didn't materialize there is is notable too. And and you know, they used to say, of course, we beat this dead horse that all politics is local. Now it's now it's the reverse. And so if there's a tide that's helping Democrats on the federal level, you, you know, you're gonna largely see that happen on, on the local level too, with some notable exceptions. And and I should say too, I think one point that's that's worth mentioning is like it's wild to think that, you know, we're, we're splitting hairs here with like individual seats, maybe determining whether Dems lose the House majority or not. But New York's redistricting situation, this could be like the decisive blow that takes away House control for, for Democrats. And in some ways, they've got like themselves to blame a little bit, too. Obviously, it's complicated. And Cuomo, a Democrat, I guess it should be said, has a lot of you know responsibility here. But these are kind of fundamentals, right? You know, redistricting happens once every 10 years, right? You've got to deal with it when it happens. And if you if you come out on the wrong end of that, that process in certain states in the wrong way, you could lose the house. And there's other dynamics in New York, too, that are probably worth mentioning. But those redistricting fights can can be ongoing. And, you know, the fact that you could basically if Dem, Dems do end up losing the house majority that you can basically just point to New York and like Florida's redistricting is what did it. I mean, that, that was pretty unthinkable a few months ago. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. You've got a really good piece up at The Daily Beast about how Georgia's voting law may have a huge impact in the runoff race between Walker and Warnock. So I encourage people to go check it out. Sam, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or... I prefer... Don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Joining me now is CNN commentator and New York Daily News columnist Sarah Elizabeth Cup. S.E., thanks for being here. Why would you do me so dirty? I don't know. Do you want me to redo it? <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> okay, okay. It's not a secret. <laughs> I thought it was time the people knew. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an open book. <laughs> uh, so there was an election on Tuesday. You may have uh, read about it. What? As of now, this is early Thursday afternoon. It looks like the GOP is going to take the House by some narrow margin. And we kind of have no idea who's going to end up in control of the Senate. I think it's going to be close either way. The overall bottom line is that the Republican red wave never materialized. The Democrats did better than was generally expected. So, S.E., what do you attribute this to? And does your latest column, The Midterm's Biggest Loser, Donald Trump, answer my question? Yeah. Why don't you do some research? You'll know how I feel before you ask me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, Yeah. <laughs> I'm not alone. That was, you know... I think the major takeaway, and now if you just look at the rash of headlines, people think, and, and people on the right included, think Trump should go away. I, I called it a Trumpster fire. Also sure I'm not the only one. But yeah, look, all of the momentum was with Republicans. The historical momentum, you know, how usually the party in power is punished. That was all with Republicans. Then you had Joe Biden's low approval numbers. Then you had you know, a, a flagging economy, all of that was supposed to mean a red wave. And the fact that the wave never manifested and, and Democrats actually did better, it's hard to search for a reason other than Donald Trump is a major drag on the Republican Party. And I've been saying that for years, and it became evident when he lost the House, Senate and the White House for Republicans over, you know, a mere four years. But maybe now, finally, Republicans will realize that everything this guy touches turns to garbage eventually. I don't know. We'll we'll see if they all get amnesia, you know, like next week. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to that in a second because uh -huh. that's a that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I do want to touch on though everything you just said seems to apply not only obviously, but particularly it seemed like it was true when it came to governorships. So Mastriano in Pennsylvania, who was Trumpy, you had Baldick in New Hampshire. And yeah. in both of those cases and others, it felt like if the Republicans had just nominated someone not Trumpy, they probably would have won or at least would have had a very good chance of winning. And in both cases, they lost bigly, as we like to say. Yeah, I mean, Pennsylvania's swingy. New Hampshire can be swingy. So I guess they were thinking, look, let's shoot our shot and see if we can get someone real Trumpy 
elected in a place like Pennsylvania or New Hampshire, what I can't explain is going to states like Massachusetts and Maryland, which are not swingy, those are blue states, that had very popular Republican governors cut of a very different cloth from, right. from Trump, right? Larry Hogan, Charlie Baker. I mean, they're, they're Democrats, Republicans, but Republicans nonetheless. And they both served two terms that were real popular. You would think Republicans would like take the blueprint. Let's do that again. And instead, right. Republicans literally condemned Larry Hogan. He wasn't <laughs> Trumpy enough. And Charlie Baker's a flaming liberal. And so they ran the Trumpiest candidates for governor there with like knowing there was no shot. Why do you want to just give up those seats and those opportunities? And to me, I've been saying it comes down to the fact I don't think winning is the important thing to Republicans anymore. It stopped being important maybe after 2016 when the culture wars and owning the libs, that became the most important thing. Maybe now, maybe now, Republicans will think about winning again, which I think is, I think is the point of politics, right? The, <laughs> to win so you can govern, right? It's not just to like whatever, whatever it is they're doing. Historically, I'm a bit of a history buff and historically that is yes. correct. Yes, yes. I'll fact check you, but I believe you. Okay. You write that one of the things you wrote in your piece was that Trump is a divider, not a multiplier, and he is quite literally a loser. First of all, I worry this might hurt your relationships with the MAGA folks, <laughs> so be careful there. But in, in all seriousness, as you pointed out earlier, we're now starting to see a lot of recriminations among Republicans, a lot of why would Trump do this, whether it's get behind bad candidates or focus fire on Ron DeSantis. And all of this seems to be coming from people who apparently made it to adulthood without reading The Scorpion and the Frog. So I, I don't quite understand it. But as you said before, you said, we'll see if this sort of sticks. Do you think it will? Because I'm a little more skeptical, I think, than a lot of people because I'm looking at it, you know, and thinking there were so many other times they had the chance to get away from Trump, maybe after January 6th, for example. Right. And and they in some way managed to not. So is this the time? I don't think so. Listen, it's stunning to look at the headlines coming from, you know, the New York Post, Fox News, Ben Shapiro, Washington Examiner. Folks on the right, folks, by the way, who enabled him, but folks on the right are saying it's time to go away. I'm telling you, they will just be labeled um, establishment progressives right. pretty soon by MAGA world because the power isn't in right wing media. The power isn't in Republicans in Congress. The power isn't in people like Joe Scarborough and and even, you know, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. It's not in those people. The power is in Trump and his voters. And anyone who's not Trump is the problem. Trump is the solution to, to every question. And I don't see that changing. The problem's never just been disavowing Trump. The problem's been, are Republicans willing to lose his voters? And Republicans in leadership in Congress have not been willing to say to like the QAnon crowd, you just stay home, we don't want your votes. Right. Or, you know, other conspiracy theorists or anti-Semitic members of Congress and voters, the, the Proud Boys, the white nationalists. Republicans haven't said, you're not part of our party. We don't want to own you. We don't want to claim you. Instead, they courted them. They allowed them. They ignored them. And in many cases, they said they were very fine people. So <laughs> until, until Republicans, it's not just swatting at Trump. It's saying yeah. we don't want his voters anymore. I don't think anyone in Republican leadership is willing to do that. So he will claw his way back. He will find a way to swat all of this down. Republicans will forget about it. That's my prediction. I hope I'm wrong. Believe me, this is a prediction I, I really hope I'm wrong about. But we've seen this movie. And um, like you said, if the insurrection wasn't enough to snap the party back to it's right. conservative roots and reality and decency. I don't think this is going to do it either. Well, it's funny. Right before we started this interview, I jotted down a note because it had struck my mind. And I, I just wrote down, I wrote Trump versus Trumpism. What I meant by that was pretty much exactly what you said. Like, it feels to me like even if Trump himself is not the nominee, I don't feel like Trumpism is going away anytime soon in the Republican Party. That's right. I mean, it's really unique. You know, I've been describing the Republican Party more like a cult than a political movement. Right. Of course. Yeah. But listen, usually when the figurehead of the cult dies or goes away, the cult, right. the cult then, Nexium, Jonestown, Koresh. I, I don't think that's really happened here. Donald Trump hasn't died, but he, he is out of office and he might go to jail. 
And he's done a lot of bad things to his own voters, in fact. And Trumpism is surviving, I think, for exactly the reasons I just said, that Republicans don't have the courage to disavow the voters, the people who are still adhering to Trumpism. It's because this is their own fault. They allowed the party to condense and condense and condense. It got smaller. They didn't care because it got more loyal. And they still had enough voters to, to maybe eke out a win. I don't think they have enough voters to eke out a win if it keeps getting smaller and smaller. They've already thrown the good conservatives out. So this is who they have left. They really have to start over. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> that's a big project, one I hope that they seriously consider undertaking. But until they disavow the voters, and I don't mean every voter who's ever voted for Trump or course, Republican, of course. obviously, but I mean exactly who I talked about. The unsavory aspects that have infiltrated the Republican Party that should never have had a place in the party to begin with, but crept in and and then like the gates were open to them. Dare I say the deplorables? I mean, it's not wrong. Look, politics 101, <laughs> politics 101 don't shit on voters. However, I think she could have been more clever about that. But listen, I don't think it's controversial. Had she said conspiracy theorists and anti-Semites and racists. Right who are in the party are deplorables. Right. Well, that's not controversial. She called, yeah. she, called, she called a lot of them deplorables. Right. And that wasn't smart, but it shouldn't be courageous to call that stuff out. That should never have been brought in. Completely agree. Another reason I'm a little skeptical of this is it's sort of hard to see the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gateses of the world suddenly dropping Trump, although people like that are narcissistic assholes. So I suppose if they think it'll benefit them, sure, they might do it. But they have sort of attached themselves to him specifically for so long that it just seems I'm skeptical that like sort of on a dime, they will turn. That's such an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, we did see Marjorie Taylor Greene was out defending Trump. Like, stop blaming Trump. He's being persecuted. Right. The election. So that's right in line with what you're saying. I don't know, because ultimately they just want to be famous and, you know, they don't want to govern. So if the center of gravity shifts, I don't know, maybe they would consider sort of leaving that behind. I just don't think the center of gravity is going to shift. I don't think it's going to be a problem that they'll have to confront in the next two years anyway. But it's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I I think you're probably right about that. So it does seem like a lot of the Trumpers, at least as you pointed out, all the people who suddenly are like, you know, Trump needs to go and he's not run in 2024. It feels like a lot of them might be shifting over to DeSantis after his big win in Florida. Obviously, I hate doing the whole it's 2024 campaign season now. But d- would you consider him sort of the unofficial front runner right now? Um, I think Trump is still the front runner. Okay. Like I said, I think some of this is going to deflate. Right. You know, the anti-Trump hysteria is going to deflate a bit. But I mean, Ron DeSantis has been going up in polls in important states for a year now because I've been watching his popularity rise. But when you look at head-to-head matchups, theoretical matchups, Trump still crushes him in a lot of the polls. He might be too smart. Because what Trump is so good at are these blunt attacks, you know, that get right to the heart, like little Marco, right? I mean, that's not smart. It's not clever. It's not interesting. It's really lazy, but it was effective. Right. And I don't think we should underestimate how effective Trump will be if he fully turns on Ron DeSantis. He hasn't fully turned yet. He's sort of threatening to, though, right? Yes, exactly. And that's a little something. But if he fully turns on Ron DeSantis, I'm not sure... The cult of DeSantis is strong enough to fend off Trump. I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. I've never seen anything like Trump in the way he can completely, you know, decapitate a political rival. Yeah, this is starting to feel like it's going to be like the papists versus the Church of England type situation where it's just you have like (laughs) which religion ends up winning. Well, it's and it's nuclear, too, because in the end, it weakens them both. And also, like, these are very close religions. Like, these are strains of a very similar religion. Right. They're not all that different. So it's really, I don't know, it's going to be interesting and also garbage to watch. But uh, I think that's where we're headed, inevitably. I don't think Ron DeSantis is going to back down from 2024. I think he feels like this is his time. 
And I think Trump is running. So that'll be interesting. Something you just said struck me. You said that, you know, the two churches are very similar. So you are very famously an anti-Trumper and have been from day one, day zero, actually, probably. Do you feel the same way about DeSantis? Is DeSantis someone who could bring you back to the Republican Party or are you just like, no? No, he's total repellent for me as well. Okay. And... I think had Trumpism not occurred, he might be governing very differently. I mean, he leaned into the wokeism and the culture yes, wars. Yes. And that's obviously made him very popular, you know, in Florida. So I think he could definitely be the president of Florida and they all love him. He's not getting me. And I'm not sure he appeals to most other never Trumpers like me because he's taking some of the worst parts of Trump, the laziest parts of Trump and really leaning into them in ways that I think are bad for the party and continuing, continuing Trumpism, not severing from it. I don't know. Just as a conservative, I like to look at these things as like just from a purely conservative point of view. I don't think it's conservative to spend millions of taxpayer dollars on an election task force to root out non-existent fraud. Right. I don't think that's conservative. I don't think that's fiscally responsible. I don't think that's limited government. I don't think stunts like picking up migrants in Texas and dropping them off in Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket. Like, I don't think that's conservative. I think it's stupid. Yeah. Um, So that's the stuff that's never going to get me back on board because it's not conservative. So I'll get back into the Republican Party when conservatism becomes important again. So never. Right. Probably. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) So do you think uh, this is now shifting to sort of like a tactical type thing? Do you think Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House? Yeah, but like briefly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's going to be harder for him to survive being speaker than it is to become speaker, is what I think, because Ah. I think he'll get it, but it's such a carnivorous place. And, you know, I watched it happen to Boehner from some of the same guys that are still there, right? Like the Freedom Caucus, the Jim Jordans. Right. And then we watched it happen to Paul Ryan. And Kevin McCarthy's so weak, he won't be able to navigate this very well. And he won't be able to tell people, shut up and, you know, go back to your office and do your work. And I'm in charge here. So I think he's going to bite off a lot more than he can chew. And he is not ready for the snake pit he's going to be in if he becomes Speaker of the House. That's really interesting. For some reason, I hadn't even considered the possibility that he sort of does get, you know, elected because it's sort of like, well, it's his turn. We'll give it to him. And, yeah. but then, you know, within a couple months, yeah. it's just all the resentment starts bubbling up. And, you know, the first time things don't go the way that Jim Jordan wants them to or whatever. Yeah. Or Marjorie yeah. Taylor Green. Yeah. Yeah. So that's some excellent analysis there, Essie. So, lastly, before I let you go, can you explain to me Herschel Walker getting into a runoff? Can you explain to me 49% of the Georgia voters? thinking that he belongs in the Senate? I can't. I mean, for so many reasons, you're asking the wrong person. I know. Um, <laughs> for all the reasons, he's unappealing to me, right? Like, I don't I don't love the celebrity turned politician. You know, I think politicians should be a little smart, just a little, just a little, know some basic things. Political candidates should come with like ideas and solutions to problems. I think character is important and being a hypocrite should be disqualifying Lying is disqualifying for me, although it's hard to find. You are so old-fashioned. I know. I'm just, I'm a Puritan. (laughs) So, no, there's nothing about Herschel Walker. Also, I think the way he uses religion is really gross, too. Yeah. So none of that appeals to me. None of it appeals to me. And I'm not a Georgia voter, nor am I a Georgia Republican voter. So I don't understand it. I will say I did watch a full interview he did at a church in Georgia, maybe six months ago for like shits and gigs. And I was impressed. I think I wrote about it because when he's not at a pulpit talking off the cuff, when when he's just sitting down in, in this case with a pastor and talking about his life, he's charming. He seems authentic. I get how if that's all you saw, you'd be really impressed by him. You'd admire him. You'd want to go where he was going. We've seen so much other stuff that it's hard for me to like, you know, I know too much, but I I mean, he, he's not without talent, but the talent should be like, go open a Chevy dealership, you know, like (laughs) for used Chevys or like, go, you know, be like, um, inspirational speaker, open a church, you know, like that, that's, I think he's got some talents for that. Being in the United States Senate, I don't think is where he belongs. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Essie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And I really, really appreciate it as always. Yeah, my pleasure. I think we've got so much to talk about over the next two years, obviously. But I mean, this election's still going. So it's, yeah. it is really still interesting to talk about it. Thanks for having me on. Joining me now is Mother Jones, national voting rights correspondent and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, Ari Berman. Ari, thank you so much. Hey, Andy, good to talk to you. Thank you. So I'll start as general as possible. There was no red wave on Tuesday. GOP did worse than expected slash feared. The Democrats did better than expected slash feared. What's your biggest takeaway? Like your number one? Well, the number one thing I was concerned about was would people who don't believe in free and fair elections take over the election system in a lot of really key battleground states? And so far that hasn't happened. So that is by far my biggest takeaway and by far my biggest relief. I was also watching the whole process of voting during early voting and during the run-up to election day. Would people have problems voting? Would there be challenges at the polls? Would there be challenges over vote counting? So far, that hasn't happened either. So in a year that looked very apocalyptic for democracy, the results seem surprisingly good so far. Let's talk about one of the aspects of that for a second. We heard a lot in the run-up to the election. There was a lot of fear of, you know, armed, quote-unquote, poll watchers and stuff like that. And it seemed to mostly not materialize, which obviously is fantastic. Like, I don't want to sound like I'm upset that these predictions didn't come true. But I guess the question is, were these fears overblown or was it one of those cases where, you know, maybe alerting people to this stuff made it not happen? I think maybe both. I also think that Republicans used a lot of really apocalyptic rhetoric about what they were planning to do, how they were planning to monitor the polls. So that made right. a lot of people really nervous when Steve Bannon is saying that we're systematically taking over the election system and the people that tried to overturn the Capitol are now volunteering to be poll workers. I mean, that's very, very yeah. concerning. So I think there was a lot of reasons to be concerned. I never thought there were going to be major confrontations just because there are checks and balances built into the system. If people start doing things that are illegal, they're going to get thrown out of poll stations. They're going to get thrown out of voting centers. And I also know that counting votes is actually really boring. And that once people became poll workers, they were going to realize that there's no deep state conspiracy for Hugo Chavez to manipulate the voting machines. It's just like right. average people right. doubting ballots. And actually, it's really, really boring to stand around for days on end and do this. And it's incredibly vital. I mean, we need people to do this kind of work. It very much is just the basic administrative infrastructure of democracy. It's not a sexy thing. And I think all these people got super jazzed up that they were going to see some massive conspiracy. And lo and behold, they were let in the room and it was just a bunch of elderly ladies counting votes like always happens. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think they. some people were expecting to see like actual mules, like the animal. <laughs> <laughs> and like carrying just the uh, satchels filled with votes or something. I don't know. The other thing we sort of haven't seen is a lot of contesting the results, at least not as of yet. It's Thursday afternoon as we record this. And that was obviously another huge fear. But, you know, there was a lot of uh, talk in the run-up, again, in the run-up to the election, you had Tucker Carlson and a lot of people talking about how if Oz didn't win in Pennsylvania, it was proof that everything was rigged. And they sort of haven't followed through on that, which, again, is a good thing. But did you I sort of expected there to be a lot more of that. Yeah, I think people have just really limited patience for that after Trump. I think election officials did a really good job explaining the process. This time, Republicans were able to change the laws in their favor in a bunch of key states. So they really didn't have anything to complain about in a lot of places. They also were able to get favorable court rulings on mail voting in places like Pennsylvania. So I think the, the landscape already was taking right. place under a set of conditions that were favorable for them as a party post-2020. But also the races really weren't that close. So there really wasn't that much to contest. Right. We'll see what happens. The closest races now are taking place in two places. Arizona, Nevada, where there's election deniers on the ballot. So we'll see about this. But I think in general, there's very little patience for this. Uh, and I think that a lot of Republican leaders looked really bad in 2020, waiting so long to affirm the validity of the votes. And I'm not saying Mitch McConnell or those guys wouldn't do it again, because I think they're acting based on politics, not principle. But I mean, the further we go from the 2020 election, the crazy 
crazier the behavior, not just of Trump, but all the people that enabled him look. And I think that there was just going to be very, very little patience for that kind of uh, denialism this year, uh, particularly because there was so much scrutiny on it. It kind of surprised everyone when Trump did it in 2020, but now everyone's prepared for people to just be sore losers and, and then they just don't want to hear it. <laughs> On both sides, they just don't want to hear it. Unless there's an actual close election, they just want to move on to the next step. Yeah, and of course, I'm not counting the Mike Lindells and the people like that who are still going about their business saying that all these elections were stolen. I'm, I don't count those people. It's also a midterm. Trump isn't on the ballot. You know, right. it's like right. there's different dynamics that just because it didn't happen in 2022, I don't think we should assume that it's not going to happen in 2024. Oh, absolutely. And as you point out, we have yet to see what happens with Carrie Lake in Arizona and like, was it Laxalt in Nevada? Yeah. Who knows? So if you're the Democratic Party, if you're the DNC, the DCCC, the DSCC, what lessons do you take from these midterms? The lessons that I took were that people were very concerned about their democracy being taken away and their rights being taken away, and that Democrats won because of those issues, not in spite of them. People were saying, well, Democrats should address inflation and the economy. Well, I mean, like they should have definitely obviously talked about those issues, but there's really nothing Biden can do about inflation. It's a huge global problem. So even if he had talked about inflation every day of the week, I'm not sure really what he could have done tangibly about it. Could they have talked about their economic policies more effectively? Sure, that Democrats always need to be able to talk about their economic policies more effectively. But this idea that a lot of pundits said that democracy was a side issue or abortion was a side issue. I mean, these were things that people really cared about, particularly that a lot of Democrats cared about. These were issues that led them to vote, that led them to volunteer. And there was a, a feeling that if democracy didn't survive in 2022, if some of these election deniers won, free and fair elections could have been irrevocably changed in some of these states. So that was a really pressing concern on people's mind. It wasn't something that could just wait until the next election. It was a concern they had right now. Same with with reproductive rights. I mean, this was the first time in U.S. history that a constitutional right had been given and taken away. So the idea that you should just ignore that because voters are concerned about other issues, you obviously have to address the issues that voters were concerned about, but you also have to address the issues that exist right now. And I right. think that the results are bearing out that people were very, very concerned about their rights being taken away. And I think that's what allowed Democrats to save themselves in what was otherwise a very uncomfortable and difficult environment for the party. Well, I also think it's, you know, the media just sort of has a short attention span. So people were really stoked about the abortion issue right after the Supreme Court ruling. And there were obviously there was a lot of coverage of it. And then that sort of went away. And I think people in the media have this view that, well, we're sort of on to the next one. So everyone else in the country must be too. But I'm sure that, you know, women didn't didn't suddenly forget. That's the whole thing. It didn't go away. <laughs> right. That's that's what they don't realize. I mean, people in, for example, Wisconsin, the state I spent a lot of time with, they have an 1849 abortion ban with no exceptions for rape or incest on the books because of the Dobbs decision. The issue has not gone away in Wisconsin. It's front and center on people's minds. Every single day, women are reminded that they don't have rights that they had just a few months ago. A situation where you literally had an all-male legislature ban abortion one year after Wisconsin became a state and 70 years before women got the right to vote. And that's now in effect because of the Supreme Court. So it was not an abstract issue to voters there, particularly women voters there. Uh, and that was something that motivated people in a lot of places. It clearly motivated people in Michigan where that was on the ballot. It clearly motivated people in Pennsylvania uh, where that's a very big issue. I mean, abortion is pretty much an unsettled issue in most states in the country right now, unless you're a safely red or a safely blue state. So pretty much in every swing state, it's an unsettled issue. And so it very much was on people's minds. And I think the media thought it was a sexy story in June. Then they thought it was a boring story in October. But for for voters, it never became any less important. Yeah, absolutely. And and this uh, sort of, you know, touches on another thing that's sort of a bugaboo of mine. It's like a near constant refrain from the Democratic establishment. And I'll include a number of opinion journalists in that, that if something goes bad for the Dems, it's progressives fault. And we were hearing a lot of that in the run up to the election, whether it was about things like, you know, stop talking about transgender rights. Oh, student loan forgiveness is too big, that the program is too big. It needs to, it needs needs to be more means tested or it needs to be lesser. I feel like some mea culpas are owed. I don't feel like they'll ever 
materialize, but I do feel like they're owed. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think those issues really mattered that much in the end. I mean, it was a very unfavorable economic climate, so some people lost because of that. Again, I'm not really sure what the Democrats could have done about this. This is a situation that's plagued every single incumbent party in every country in the world that's held elections recently. So how is the U.S. supposed to distinguish itself from England and France and all the other places where inflation's running rampant? I think Democrats could have talked more about their economic accomplishments. If you looked at polling, the most popular policy for the public was having the price of prescription drugs be lowered. Well, that's what Democrats did in the Inflation Reduction Act, and nobody knew about it. So could Democrats have talked about their agenda more effectively? Absolutely, they could have. But at the same time, I don't think a lot of these other issues really hurt the party. The only thing I would say where they probably need to have a rethink is on how they talk about crime and public safety, because it was amazing to see Republicans that supported an insurrection where police officers were killed and beaten suddenly become the pro-police party. And certainly in swing districts, you weren't hearing Democrats say defund the police. And I think that really hurt Democrats in some key places, like in Wisconsin when I was out there. There were ad after ad after ad accusing Mandela Barnes, of course, who was black, saying that he wanted to fund the police. He didn't want to. But I think there's some issues where the progressives may have hurt the party. But I think in general, it didn't really hurt the party. If anything, a lot of the quote-unquote progressive positions were ones that rallied people to get to the polls. So I, I just want to move on. You you wrote, actually, you've been writing a, a bunch of fascinating pieces at Mother Jones about the issue of gerrymandering. And I think your most recent one is about the election. You, you write, a democracy crisis was averted, but gerrymandering could still save the GOP. And in this, you basically say that among all the good in Tuesday, there's still a lot of very worrying issues that could affect American democracy. And in particular, you point to what you call extreme gerrymandering. How do you define that? Just places where the maps are so skewed uh, in one direction or another for a partisan purpose. Okay. And so some examples of this, I know uh, you mentioned that you've been dealing with Wisconsin a lot. Is Wisconsin the worst example of this? I think it's the worst example right now. You had a situation where the governor in Wisconsin, Democrat Tony Evers, won by 3.5 points, which is a landslide by Wisconsin standards. But Republicans won 67% of seats in the state Senate and 64% in the state House, meaning they almost had a two-thirds supermajority in both chambers because of the maps they drew in 2021. So that's just astonishing that you could have a Democratic governor get elected pretty comfortably in a swing state. All the other statewide races be extremely close, decided by one or two points. But the legislative races are being decided by 20 points. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense rationally. And it's not because the candidates are so good in the legislature and so bad statewide. It's because they've completely rigged the the system. And I think that that's something that we saw very clearly this election. Compare Wisconsin to Michigan. Michigan was a place where, because of a ballot initiative passed by voters in 2018, there was a citizens commission that drew the districts instead of state legislatures for 2020. And what happened is they had fair maps in place for the first time, and that created many more competitive seats and allowed Democrats to retake both chambers. And now Michigan has a trifecta for the first time since 1984. That doesn't mean when you draw fair districts that Democrats are always going to win, but it gives both parties an ability to compete fairly. And that's what Wisconsin hasn't had for basically two decades. Same situation in a lot of places. And also it was a problem in the U.S. House as well, because you had a situation where Republicans very effectively gerrymandered a number of states, including Florida. By calculations I've seen, they picked up six open seats that they gerrymandered, but they only need five to retake the House. There was also Supreme Court decisions that reinstated racially gerrymandered maps where there was going to be more majority black districts that would have voted Democratic in Alabama and Louisiana. Those were not in place for 2022. So, I mean, that's eight seats right there that went Republican because of gerrymandering, which isn't to say that Democrats didn't gerrymander too, although in the state where they wanted to gerrymander the most, New York, it backfired spectacularly because the maps were struck down and the new maps, which I think were as unfair as the old maps, gave Republicans a much better chance to win. But in any case, I just think that this is such a big problem in American elections that doesn't get discussed nearly enough. that so many places, the outcomes are predetermined or the results don't match with the statewide races because of the way that districts are drawn. Yeah, it really is incredible. And you point out that 
in a couple of states, I think it's Ohio and North Carolina, the Republicans have taken control of the state Supreme Courts in those states, and that could lead to this extreme gerrymandering in those states. Yeah, and it, it almost certainly will, because those were places where there was either a Democratic majority or a moderate Republican majority that sided with the Democrats, so that uh, gerrymandered maps in both of those places were challenged in the last redistricting cycle last year. Now, they already have huge majorities, so it, it's kind of insane to begin with. I mean, there's already basically a two-thirds supermajority in Ohio and a near two-thirds supermajority in North Carolina, but they're going to try to gerrymander the, the House districts as well. So you have to imagine that's going to try to give them even more seats than they otherwise would have because of gerrymandering. And in general, a lot of these local state issues are so important. I mean, people really don't pay attention to state Supreme Court races, state legislative races. Uh, to me, these are so incredibly important. They have so much power. The state legislatures have so much power to decide how the districts look, how voting laws look, things like that. And then the state Supreme Courts often are the last place to weigh in on these things because the U.S. Supreme Court has said very explicitly, we are not going to hear partisan gerrymandering cases, Right, meaning that the state Supreme Courts are going to hear these things. So in Ohio, in North Carolina, in Wisconsin, it's likely going to be the state Supreme Court, not the U.S. Supreme Court, deciding these issues in the years to come. So what's the way out of this? It sounds like it's almost like a perpetual motion machine or, or like it's, you know, A happens, which leads to B, which leads to C, which leads to D. And there's sort of no way out of that loop. Well, I think that it was a huge mistake that Democrats made not passing a ban on partisan gerrymandering with the Freedom to Vote Act last year. I know they tried. Obviously, it was blocked by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, but I think we're going to live with the ramifications of Democrats not doing anything about this problem for a long time to come. And if by some miracle they are able to retake the House and somehow get 51 votes in the Senate and flip one other senator... <laughs> Uh, maybe it's still possible. It seems extremely unlikely, but I mean, yes. that's very much a, a Hail Mary scenario. I think that basically you have to think about how to unwind the system. In Michigan, they were able to pass a ballot initiative that unwound gerrymandering and that allowed a lot more competitive races. Not every state's going to have those kind of initiatives, but what we've seen is where there's been opportunities for direct democracy, outcomes turn out a lot differently. We saw a bunch of states, for example, pass protections on abortion rights that wouldn't have passed otherwise the normal chambers of those legislatures. So I think there's issues in which there, a majority of Americans favor things if you try to take them out of just a straight D versus R or certainly a heavily gerrymandered context. And that's something that I think Democrats should try to do more of going forward. See, this is why you're the national voting rights correspondent. <laughs> Thank you. I try, to, I try to try to pay attention to the voting <laughs> as much as I can. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This was illuminating and also a little scary. Thanks a lot, Andy. That, that seems to be my specialty. So <laughs> just imagine how much worse it could have been. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. No, absolutely. Jesse Cannon. Andy Levy. So we're going to do, I guess, sort of a joint fuck that guy for today. We're tag teaming it like the wrestlers say, because we're both angry. Yes. We're going to focus on something that's a little close to home for both of us, but that has very large national repercussions. And that is the fact that Republicans did really well in New York State on Election Day. There are a bunch of reasons for this, but it all goes back to the person I want to make fuck that guy for this episode, and that is disgraced former Governor Andrew Cuomo. There are a bunch of reasons for this, but mainly it has to do with the fact that he appointed four judges to the Court of Appeals, which in New York is the highest court. The Supreme Court is below the Court of Appeals in New York. And he appointed these four judges. They have 14-year terms, in addition to making other decisions that are generally horrible. They threw out the state's redrawn district maps and led to a fucked up situation here in New York where we had a vote different times in the primaries. The primaries had to be split. They also left us, instead of throwing things back to the maps that used to be, they took the gerrymandering power away from the legislature completely and appointed a special master. And he drew these new maps that somehow ended up very favorable to Republicans and absolutely cost the Democrats seats in Congress to the point where there are people saying that you know, assuming the Republicans have a majority in the House of Representatives, which it looks like 
a near certainty they will, that a lot of that can be attributed to how well they did in New York. I think one of the things you bring up that's like really good, though, is that like this is the thing that Democrats have to get straight now in this new world we're in, which is that this guy always put his brand and his presidential aspirations before party and everything else. And you can't do that in this era when Republicans are bringing AK-47s of weapons to a gunfight when it comes to the rules we're going to play by when it comes to voting and how votes get tallied. When they filed this lawsuit to get this redistricting, Cuomo had put in this structure in place because he always wanted to seem like he was making deals because he thought that was his angle to the presidency, whether it was doing the IDC onto this, he thought saying, I'm a centrist who can compromise would get him into the White House. And now here we are. It's fucking the whole party because he put his brand before it. And what we're also seeing is that his sycophants in the state party also did a really bad job running this race. You can lay the blame to him in all sorts of places. Yeah, and AOC tweeted about this, and she's been very vocal about this, and she is 100% correct. She tweeted, New York State Democratic Party leadership, which was gutted under Cuomo and stuffed with lobbyists and works to boost the GOP and failed to pass a basic state ballot measure to protect New York redistricting, must be accountable and she is calling on the New York State Democratic Party president, Jay Jacobs, to resign. And as she points out, she was saying this as long ago as a year ago. And she is absolutely correct. It is an absolute disgrace what they have done to the Democratic Party in this state. It is just unbelievable how badly Cuomo fucked this state and fucked the Democratic Party. And people need to remember that when he inevitably decides to run for office again because he is such a goddamn narcissist that I find it highly unlikely that he can just sit on the sidelines for the rest of his life. And he is an absolute disgrace, and he belongs nowhere near the levers of power, and he completely fucked us, and I'll stop now. (laughs) If we were FCC-regulated, I'd be in jail. Hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.